0: I forgot to mumble on my way up. You can hear. okay good. Well every time we share prayer requests, we know this that there's there's always some prayer requests that didn't get shared. Uh, some because uh, you thought your your request wasn't important enough, sometimes they just get forgotten. One thing that I I don't think was mentioned is that the Van Allens, uh, Tim and Elizabeth, are home with more sick kiddos. Uh, So please be praying for them. Um, Whenever the Van Allens are sick, 27 people are are not in service. I'm pretty sure it's close to 27. But uh, please be praying for their health and recovery uh, and just patience for uh, the process. We are continuing in 2 Peter We have have seen in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter and laying out this recognition of the, in a sense, well, not in a sense, in reality, the ugliness of unrepentant sin in God's eyes. not Not the hopelessness of sin, but the ugliness of unrepentant sin of those who set themselves purposefully in opposition to God. And then particularly, as he's applying it here, in those who want to oppose the truth of Jesus Christ and and pull others away from the truth of Jesus Christ. So he's described all that, and he puts it in this context that there is a day of judgment coming. And I want us to to look at a couple of things out of that because here's how verse 7 ended, which we talked about briefly last week. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And again, that, that phrase, the destruction of ungodly men, we've said this probably, you know, hundreds of times and we've thought it, all of you have been aware of it and thought of it in different times. Heaven, just like hell, will be full of sinners. Seriously. Heaven, just like hell, will be full of sinners. But the difference will be that hell is the sinners who rejected the offer of God's love, who rejected the offer of an incredible sacrifice of love that Jesus was willing to take on the punishment that our sin deserved. And so heaven will have sinners who have said yes to that offer and are forgiven. And then as as we've read and are transformed for eternity. That when he talks about the fact, as as Deborah read for us, that in that future, in that certain absolutely will happen future, that sorrow and sin and mourning and evil will be done away with. And so he gives us that context. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But right after telling us this reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. Listen to verse 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's a continuous thought, but I want to look at the first part of it first. For, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And to me, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit chose to say it both ways. So I think we frequently recognize that because God is eternal, a single day is nothing. A thousand years is nothing. A million years is nothing for an eternal God The stretches of human history that look so long are nothing. A thousand years like a single day for him. And actually, again, he could have kept adding zeros to that. A million years is like nothing when you're eternal. A billion years is like a single day when you're eternal. You and I, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we're actually promised that eternity. We don't have an eternity past but we're promised an eternity future. But to me, it's really interesting that he also gave it in the opposite direction, that for God, one day is like a 1,000 years. And pause and, and consider that for a second, that God is, is actually saying here, things that you, would, that you would believe would take vast stretches of time to accomplish, I can accomplish those things in one day. Things that will require moving all kinds of pieces on the chessboard, so to speak, to accomplish a blessing in your life or to bring help in answer to prayer. And and there are frequently times, and I know you've thought this, I know I've thought this, uh-oh, it's too late to pray. You know, the need is right now, if I was going to pray about this, I should have been smart enough to start praying three days ago, or I should have been smart enough to start praying a year ago. Or I should have started praying the second I was born because this is such a big one. And the, the reality is God is saying, bring it to me anyway. You have no clue what I can accomplish. That for sons and daughters who trust me, I can accomplish a multitude of things very quickly. Now, that also includes the fact that this. This is an eternal God who actually says he knows the end from the beginning. So if on July 21st in the year 2019, you start praying for something, this is a thought question. When did God know you would pray for that thing? Forever. We we have repeatedly in Scripture that he knows the end from the beginning. So that God says he knows all the days of your life before you live them. So part of our comprehension of this God, this eternal God, for whom the passage of of years and years and years is is the blink of an eye to Him. Also, we get to recognize this God is invested in time. His reach is across the universe. He can accomplish a multitude of things on behalf of His children that we would think could not be done. But there are realities that God has been working on. There are some things that we prayed about today as, as we prayed as a fellowship that we prayed together today. And that God started answering that prayer seven years ago. Or he started setting up the the situation that would lead to that answer a generation ago. I think I've told you this story. And if I've told you, don't go to sleep. I'll try to make it short. But when Carrie and Aaron and I were in Hawaii, when Aaron was eight years old, and we went snorkeling. And it was the first time I'd ever found out that they make prescription snorkel masks so that I was not actually blind in the water. And I I was having a blast, and Aaron also was wearing prescription masks. And we were having a blast. After an hour, Carrie got out of the water, she was tired. Aaron and I kept going, and I mean we kept going. And at one point after we'd been out in there, probably for another hour, I looked up, and we had been at a beach with a cliff and I could barely see the top edge of that cliff. We were so far away. And I realized we were in a current that was taking us away from the island. I didn't want to scare Aaron, but I said, sweetheart, we need to, we, we need to start swimming back. And we began swimming back, and we were getting tired, really tired, swimming against that current. And I tried to angle us, and we were still getting tired. And Aaron said, Dad, I cannot swim anymore. I have to rest and I said well sweetheart I'll I'll get under you and I'll try to hold you up so that you can rest by the way Aaron and I we both float six inches under the water so that's just a sad reality and as I got under her to hold her up I could see about we were in about 30-40 feet deep water there was one pinnacle of coral that came up right underneath me so that I could rest my feet on that and hold her up and there was no coral anywhere around that. And then we went on. And then probably in about another half hour or so, Aaron said the same thing, I can't keep going. And same thing, I, I went under the water and there was one pinnacle of coral right where I needed it to be to rust. And the bottom line is we did not die that day. Just <laughs> want, to, whew, want to get you to the end of the story. We made it back. I was in trouble, but we made it back. And, and Kerry was, was probably happier to see us than I was in trouble, but I was in trouble. <laughs> but that recognition later I was sharing with a friend who, who does a lot of scuba diving and, and is very familiar with the ocean. And when I shared with him that event, he said something, and I don't remember the exact years, but he said, you realize each one of those stacks of coral had to start growing about two or 300 years ago. And as I was praying that God would help us and get us back, it dawned on me when he said that, that God's saying, I started working on answering your prayer two or three hundred years ago. I knew what you would pray, I knew what you would need, and I got ready. And you know what, there could have been coral everywhere, but God was showing off. (laughs) I prepared exactly what you needed it, and where and when you needed it and in a way that you would know who to thank. And you and I actually experience that more than we realize. We we see the grace and the help of God. We see the intervention of God, we see the protection and provision of God way more than we realize. And and the the truth is for us as believers we need to wake up our awareness so that we're filled with greater gratitude, that this God who can stretch out time or can compress time or can ignore time to get things answered and taken care of is constantly active in our lives as a loving father. We just sang that song, You're a Good, Good Father. And I'm going I'm to confess something here. I don't think I've confessed this before. When we first started singing that song, I didn't like it. Um, I don't know why, I just didn't like it. I like it a lot now. Because the more we sang it, the more I realized as as the person writing that song was writing that song, they were just pouring their heart out back to God in awareness. You're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. And your goodness and your love define who you are. And the fact that I am loved defines who I am to you. So that I hope when you're singing that song, you ponder the words. You don't just sing it to get to the next song that you and I ponder the words of awareness. Father, you're a good, good father, and you're good all the time. I attended a church years ago that every time the the pastor or the worship leader would get up, they would start out and they would say, God is good, and the congregation would, would say back to them out loud, all the time. And we don't have to say it all the time, but we better be aware of it more and more and more with gratitude that this God is active. But he goes on to this in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So at the time Peter was writing this, decades had gone, decades had passed, since the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples had seen Jesus... Rise up to heaven after his resurrection. Jesus, in his resurrected form, we have other passages that talk about this. Over 500 believers at one point got to hear Jesus teach them after his resurrection. And those early believers were waiting for Jesus to return. And angels said, You know, as you've seen him leave, he's going to return the same way. How freaky is that? That's just weird. Here's Jesus rising to heaven, and then there's two angels saying, pay attention, because what you just saw is going to happen in reverse. One day, he will come back just like he left. And we have a multitude of prophecies and scriptures that talk about that return. We have over 300 prophecies that talked about Jesus' birth and life and death. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' birth, life, and death. We have way more than that in terms of his return. Way more prophecy about the second coming. And I think it's beautiful that God fulfilled all those 300 plus prophecies so exactly in the life of Christ so that when we read the prophecies of his return, we wouldn't say, ah, that just doesn't sound realistic. We talked last week about the, the idea of people refusing to believe in the return of Christ because they say, you know what, everything continues just like it's always been. This week was just like last week. This week was like the week a year ago and 10 years ago and 50 years ago. And nations keep doing nation things and politicians keep doing politician things. It's called lying for the most part. But things just keep happening. Wars happen, then nations recover. Babies are born, then people get old and die. Everything just keeps happening the way it's been happening. And and he's saying, please pay attention. That is not God being slow. That is God being patient because you're worth saving to him. And he gives this, this statement, God is not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And we get to have this mindset of recognizing that no matter how we would talk back to God about that possibility or that offer, he really is saying, you too. You're worth it to me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says it this way. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So again, back when we were reading those other passages about judgment for the ungodly, it starts with this. That God's saying, nobody has to be there at that day of judgment. It's not my plan or my hope or my desire that anybody would be there. I desire that everyone would come believe my offer, that everyone would say yes to this, I'm ready to forgive you. You know, and as we talked about in Sunday school, that, that recognition that whatever I can think of, if I could say, well, here's this sin, and that's the reason God can't forgive me. God's answer to that would be, but that's exactly the sin that my son paid for and died for. I measured that sin and I poured out wrath on him so that you could be forgiven. And that this is an offer of love. This is not an angry God saying, you better get out of the way. This is a loving, good, good father saying, I'm ready to rescue anyone if they will simply say yes to my offer. And so that recognition we have in, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, this is the day of salvation. And he, and he basically says, as long as you can say it's today, it's the day of salvation. So I have talked to people who they can remember some moment in their past. So often it's in their childhood, and they go, oh, you know what? My opportunity passed. When I was a child, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I refused it. Or when I was a teenager at camp, the Holy Spirit invited me and I, and I refused it. And God is, is clarifying his heart's desire. He's saying, if it's today, this is the day of your salvation. If it's today, say yes. With this comprehension, I poured out on my son everything that your sin required of judgment so that no one has to be standing in that day of judgment once this offer has been made. So we get to recognize while we're talking about judgment, while we're talking about the end of all things, that first we get to see the heart of God. But he also says this, back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 14 he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord, as salvation. So now he's putting his patience on us, and he's putting his purpose of salvation on us. So I saying, while we're waiting for his return, that we would also regard this as the time of salvation. And first of all, that means for each of us individually saying, yes, Father, yes, your son dying for me, yes, I accept that but he also means that I'm taking on the mindset of God who is not willing that any should perish. So um, I hope not too many people in the room would identify with this, but I've certainly heard from people um, several times in counseling where Christians, sadly, saying, you know what, I sorta hope Uncle Bob never accepts Christ. I gotta change my, Uncle Archibald um, never accepts Christ. So he can face the judgment. That's a terrifying thing to think. That's an ugly, horrible thing to think. Because the best, the best way to get back at the enemy for all the damage he's done through Uncle Archibald is to pray for Uncle Archibald to be saved and forgiven and become part of the family of God. So that, and, and the best example of that we know, and many of you are very familiar with this, is what Jesus prayed from the cross. While they were killing him, not later, a few years later, when he'd sort of dealt with it and gotten over the trauma, while they were killing him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. So that he was desiring their forgiveness at the very moment that they were destroying him. That gets to be your mindset and my mindset as we pray, maybe even for people that have done harm to us that have been horrible to us. And most of us probably have experienced somewhere in our life someone who did horrible things to us by their attitude, by their behavior, by some abuse. But whether it was physical, whether it was social, whether it was just in in terms of damage to our reputation, someone has probably done something relatively horrible to you. And that you and I would have the wisdom to say, Father, if you desire their salvation... I want to see this season as the season of salvation for them too. And if I'm going to take on that mindset, why don't I start praying for their forgiveness? So if there truly is someone in your history, if there is someone in your past or at your next family reunion, if there's someone in your life that is that source of hurt or horribleness, the best revenge, the best turning of the tables against the enemy is that you and I would devote our hearts and our minds to praying for their salvation. And maybe because of the relationship, they'll never listen to you. Maybe you'll never be the one to preach the gospel to them or to to remind them that Jesus died for their sins. But you absolutely have all the power and authority of Jesus Christ granted to you to pray for their salvation, to be God's partner in recognizing this is the season of salvation. God isn't slow. He's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And that you and I would be wise enough to take on that mindset. Somebody at work, somebody in the family, somebody in the neighborhood, again, somebody in our past, that we decide, you know what, Father, I want to be free of resentment and hurt over this person. Let's change the story. Where now, instead of every time I remember that, I'm immersed in hurt, I actually become allies with you, and you and I together, we start praying and seeking their salvation. Now he goes on to say this. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. And in verse 12, looking for hastening the coming of the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will be melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that was the focus of Revelation 21 that Deborah uh, read for us. I sorry to say sang. Deborah didn't sing it, but it, was, but it was beautiful music to our ears if we were really listening is that God was saying, I promise you this new thing is coming. We have in Romans 8 this, this revelation that the whole universe groans under the destruction and the damage of sin, longing for that day. And that we get to recognize this. It's not just the end of things. So we have all kinds of references in Scripture to the end of days and, and to the final days and to last days. And here we have the end of all things destroyed by fire. And he doesn't just say the earth. He says the earth and all the heavens. So we have in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, both. And now we have in Revelation 21, verse 1, I'm destroying all of it and starting fresh. Now, here's the thing. I think this creation's pretty amazing. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. And, and there are even times where I think, okay, God, even if the world is going to be destroyed, could we make sure I get to go to the Grand Canyon? <laughs> um, you know, and I, I've got my list. I want to see the pyramids, you know, and God goes, Prom- I promise you, if you miss any of that, that you and I get to comprehend this. The God who created this is not out of ideas. The God who created this hasn't maxed out on his understanding and and his visions of beauty and his visions of amazement and his visions of awesomeness. That he really is saying, if you think this one's good and you're my sons and daughters, you're going to be with me when I blow your minds away. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the mind of man cannot conceive of the good things God has for those who love him. So it's not just we're looking for judgment. We're actually praying for salvation before the day of judgment for everyone we know. But then also when we see past that day of judgment to the destruction of this universe and the new universe, and why is that necessary? Because this one's tarnished. This one's damaged. Now, I won't go into science. I hope you all have been taking wonderful notes. David, I know you've been taking good notes. He has. David's been taking good notes. Uh, I totally forgot about the board. (laughs) But that recognition that that this this new creation has no evil in it, no damage in it, no destruction in it. It has never been damaged. It will be everything it was designed to be. We we have in in science a thing called entropy. Entropy. And again, we have some some science-minded people here who could give you a much better definition of entropy than I'm going to give you. But here's entropy in a nutshell. Everything wears down. Everything devolves. Everything breaks down. And every system we know, unless there's energy being put from outside that system, every system degenerates. I was just reading this past week that... One of the things they're saying is we can't keep getting better and better and better because they can now scientifically show our very genetics are deteriorating. It's not a matter of, well, then let's breed some better humans. That's been tried. It doesn't always go well. The issue is humanity-wide, worldwide, our genetics are deteriorating. That's not a shock. That's what entropy means, and entropy is visible everywhere in the universe. Things wear down. And part of what God's doing and creating in this next new universe is he's saying, this one is eternal. This one's designed on the foundation of different physical principles. Sin has not yet impacted this new universe, and it never will, and you and I will be a part of that. Mark, as he was praying, was, was referencing the fact that we are promised eternal bodies. And in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this body, even if this body could last, this body isn't built for eternity. That we're going to receive new bodies that are literally built for eternity. Entropy will have no place there. Things wearing down will have no place in us physically, in us spiritually, or in the entire universe because it's a universe we will share with God for eternity. I cannot even picture that. I can say the words and I can barely understand that, which is exactly what God says. You can't understand everything I'm going to do. But you're going to love it. It's exactly what you were designed for. But I'm going to close with this one thing so that the roast does not burn. But in verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And so part of what he's saying is, if I really believe this, it should change how I live now. If I really believe that I'm designed and destined to reign with God for eternity... Why would I possibly want to wait till then to start acting like I'm in that relationship with God? If I really comprehend that everything around me is temporary, why would I want to invest my life in in treasuring the temporary rather than building treasures in the eternal? And that caution is all through the New Testament where Jesus said, make your treasures where they last. If you've spent your whole life, if I spend my whole life making treasure and building treasure and and idolizing the treasures of this physical world, and I have not invested in eternity, I have not invested in love relationship with God, I've not invested in honoring and loving and obeying and walking with him, and he says the tiniest thing I do with him, I give a cup of water in his name, and Jesus said, that cannot fail to receive its eternal reward. So he's not talking about just, well, if you become uh, another Billy Graham and you preach the gospel to millions, then maybe you'll receive a reward. He's saying, go back to your life this week. Go back into your home and determine to do God-amazing things in how you love your children, how you love your husband or your wife or your friend or your neighbor or your parents. You better not leave parents out determine that you're going to go do something loving that is pleasing to God. And he says, you know what? That little act of love, that's eternal. I'm going to keep that, and that is treasure for you in my kingdom. And you cannot even begin to comprehend how I'm going to reward you in honor for that. But I will. I promise you I will. So that recognition, if I really comprehend the end of all temporary things, of all physical things, and I comprehend the the creation of a whole new universe that is designed for union in the presence of God, I want to live like I believe in that universe. I want to live like I already belong to that universe. And I don't want to waste my life investing in treasures. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean foolishness. So I'm sure all of you have heard stories of people who thought the end was near. And so they sold their home and they went to the mountains to wait for Jesus. Or they gave everything away and, and just went out to preach the gospel in the streets. And then in about three days, Jesus didn't come back and they had to go get a job. <laughs> so this is not about foolishness. This is about a heart of wisdom that means I take care of what I have to take care of. I'm wise and responsible about what God's put in my hands to care for. And I build my greatest treasures for eternity. I get ready for that life. So now he also says this. um, We we talked about it in Sunday school. In, In Hebrews, he says, consider how to stimulate one another, how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And that that recognition of consideration applies in this too. So that when he's saying, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know what he doesn't do right after that verse? He doesn't list 27 ways to do it. That's your job. That's my job. He's saying, now ponder this, consider this. If I really believe this, what kind of person should I be? How should I be growing and changing as a husband? How should each of you be growing and changing as friends and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and children and parents? How should we be changing? Because we believe this. And the the, the challenge of this is, since you didn't give me the list, I'm supposed to go have the father-son, father-daughter love conversation where you and I actually figure out what that's supposed to look like. And just like the word consider, it doesn't mean I just agree that the idea is true. It means I go spend some time doing it. I go spend some time with the Bible and a notebook and a pen and and a prayerful conversation with God. Father, what should I look like a little more in the day ahead or the year ahead than I look like yesterday or last year? Help me comprehend what my life should look like more because I really believe in this eternal stuff. I really believe this eternal stuff. So have that conversation with God and remember this, it's a love conversation. It's not a condemnation conversation. It's not God crushing you under how bad you are. It's God offering you the very life of Jesus Christ to equip you to be more than you are, more than we ever could be on our own. Let's pray together. Father, so much of this is bizarre. That's just the truth. It's just strange, Father, in our mundane life, or as we're going along paying bills and getting to work and fixing flat tires and everything else that our life is about, to recognize this everything around us is temporary. And if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we simply believe that your son's death was the outpouring of your wrath on him for our sin so we could be forgiven. And we say, yes, we accept it. That then we become eternal with you and we get to share in eternal things with you. So that we still fix that flat tire, and we still go to work and we still pay our bills. But we save our heart and our mind and our highest treasure for the things of love relationship with you. We keep growing and changing because we agree with you that we're called to grow up to be like you. Your word says that in this fellowship we get to encourage one another to keep reaching for the maturity of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to not settle for where we are today. And again, not in a sense of condemnation. You've set us free from condemnation. You said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your son took all the condemnation. But Father, we do ask for a vision where we hunger for more than we are. And then we believe you that the very life of Jesus Christ dwelling within us makes that growing possible. We choose this. We choose this life of Jesus Christ growing within us to help us become more like you. Help us to consider what that will keep looking like, Father. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.